0: This is the Evolution Exchange Podcast, a channel that connects some of the most successful technical leaders in the Nordics region. I'm Andy. I help connect businesses with the best UX and UI freelance talent, and today I'm your host. Welcome to the Evolution Exchange podcast, where today we're going to be talking trends. So what does the future of creative work look like? I've got some fantastic guests with me today. This is our, our my first live podcast as well. So thank you very much for everyone taking part and uh, for Satu and Rovi for hosting. Oh, so we'll kick off with some introductions before we go into the questions. Uh, first, Steve. Please, could you introduce yourself to
1: Yeah, I'm Steve McLaughlin, a design director at Next Games. I've been here in Finland for six years or so. Before that, a couple of years in Hamburg, Germany, and previous to that, about fifteen years in the industry working in Seattle. Lovely.
2: Thanks very much. West. Yeah, uh, my name is West Lindning. I'm currently the uh, art director at Ubisoft Redlinks. I've been there for just over two and a half years, maybe. Um, my background is in 2D animation and since then, I've kind of jumped around between 2D animation, 3D animation, mobile gaming, AAA, pretty much covered the content and worked at Rovio before, like, yeah, 10 years ago. So it's good to be back. Nice, nice. Perfect. Fantastic. Yeah, I'm Tato. Um, uh, I
3: worked at uh, Rovio's puzzle studio as a senior art director. Um, been in the industry, give and take 20 years, um, been uh, mostly working on mobile games, um, leading art projects. Uh, Here I've been seven and a half years as an art director, um, working mostly mostly with mobile games.
0: Yeah, perfect. All right, Uh, well, like I said, the topic we're gonna be talking about is Talking Trends. What does the future of creative work look like? And as per usual, each guest has provided us with some questions and we're gonna go around the room And discuss those questions so first to kick us off is steve now steve's question was how has remote work changed your team's creative process what aspects are you going to fight to preserve and which are you happy to disregard so steve could you elaborate a little bit more on where that question's come from and what are your thoughts
1: yeah um i mean everybody experienced lockdown uh in helsinki was uh never really super harsh like people stopping you from leaving your house but everybody did work from home Uh, And only from home for a very long time. Um, When the whole thing started, I figured maybe it's the American in me, but I figured we'd all be rushing back to the office as soon as we were allowed to. Um, People like to collaborate. People like to jump into conversations. People like to look over your shoulder and give some comments on what you're working on. Um, And we found in X Games, actually, that productivity has risen slightly uh, with most of us working from home. And probably the majority of us are still working from home at least 80 percent of the time. Um, and um, given that it's working out for us, we don't really have any plans to go back to uh, any sort of pressure to, to come back into the office. Like we still have events, we still have all hands meetings, but we're doing everything hybrid and mm-hmm. we expect the people to be able to manage their time and know when they need to focus and when they would be better coming into the office. So um, given that I've seen my own impression about how the outcome would happen, how people would react to being allowed to come back to the office change, I was wondering if similar things had happened at other studios around uh and and what parts of working from home maybe are responsible for that um increase in productivity and what parts um of being back in the office do we think we want to regain and how might we do that?
0: Yeah, that's a brilliant question. Uh either of you two have any initial thoughts. Yeah, I think
3: it's like a very, very good question, very timely question. Mm-hmm. Um, I I also have the same feeling that of course that we would be returning back to the office. But then that. Really didn't happen. So uh, now, now I I'm kind of torn myself. Uh, like, should we be somehow incentivizing people to come back to the office, or what's the point of coming to the office? Um, I feel like uh, for many people who really rely on uh, having the time to focus, it's been just like less. Uh, It's it's been uh, heaven, they they can uh, get a lot lot more done. But I'm also seeing the the kind of worrying trend that people are feeling more anxious. There's a lot of uh, anxiety building in people. Uh, There's a lot of people suffering from uh, uh, mental health uh, issues. Uh, There's a lot of uh, people feeling really disconnected. And it was like one of the first things that uh, hit me when I came back to the office after a long time away was that these people are the reason why I'm doing what I'm doing. I love working with these people. I'm provi- I'm there to serve them, my my team to that they're they feeling good. And if I'm at home, I'm I'm feeling a little bit disconnected from that group. That kind of the belonging is is missing. Uh, to some extent it's uh it's it's kind of like an initial thought that it's not
0: properly an answer to the question uh, but uh no it's a a really good point around the like the psychological aspects of feeling part of a team part of a group what about on the actual creative side of it then so when you have been forced to work remotely has the creative processes is it hindered that or is it like in steve's case with next games has it actually gone up in productivity I think most individual contributors have just loved it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's
3: uh, It's also for people who used to know them uh, know each other before the pandemic, uh, that they know all the people they're working with. they 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 know how to work with each other. It's maybe even easier for them to work uh, remotely. Mm-hmm. but it 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 becomes like a really bit a little bit challenging to kind of bring new peoples into that group. When you, you're unable to build that feeling of belonging for them, and uh, sometimes it feels that it feels weird to be relocating people mm-hmm. to Finland from across the globe, and then they don't have anybody here to meet. Mm-hmm. Like everybody's working from their homes. So
2: That's interesting I was interested in that actually because I, I started when the pandemic sort of broke I remember out. we spoke about that yeah, yeah so I, I was in vienna working and then i think they had cancelled flights so they wanted to figure out what was happening and then they said okay yeah you, you're allowed to fly still so why don't you come over and it was come over and move into an apartment and sit by myself <laughs> and i was supposed to be out directing a bunch of people i've never met yeah and, um that was that was really difficult it didn't feel like i was part of the company until i showed up at the office and saw the computers and the people and said, oh, yeah, I'm actually, this is where I'm working, not, okay. not at home. Uh, from, a, from a creative aspect
0: within that, because obviously this type of situation has never happened before, yeah. where we've had to, you know, everyone
2: goes remote and people like yourself are onboarded in the team. That, that's also a bit of a difficult one because I wasn't with the team before mm-hmm. the pandemic, so I, I don't know how it affected each individual. Yeah, yeah. But I, I would say it wasn't a good situation okay. within the teams where, where I was working. There. Um you could tell that people were getting lonely, they they, yeah, they felt isolated. Mm-hmm. Um, communication dropped. Uh, it's normally you have your art team in a, in a spot and you can walk around, you can see what's on their screen and it sparks conversation and it sparks creativity when you're sitting there by yourself and you've got no one to bounce ideas off. You just got text on the screen, you know, you write, people write on, um, on office. What is it? Uh, at office. Uh, uh the, the microsoft uh, teams, teams. Oh, okay yeah, yeah so they're writing on teams and then another thing i found is that people often write directly to the to the to the the one that they want to talk to rather than going through the normal mm-hmm. process of like you have your artist and they talk to the art director and who then goes and gathers the work and then once mm-hmm. a week you talk to the creative director so what was happening was you would get like an artist just reaching out straight to the creative mm-hmm. director or straight to the writer and saying like, "Hey, what what do you mean by this?" Mm-hmm. So you get this broken network of of cross lines, and then suddenly works popping up that yep. you never knew that was even yeah. in in the works. Um, and I think that created a at least in the, the the team when I arrived, I think there was a lot of confusion. And one of the things we had to do was like set very strict rules for communication yeah. and. Uh, the processes and uh, the pipeline and everything. What's
0: just a question on the back of that? Obviously, you guys work within the studios, and I, I don't at all by any means. So, playing devil's advocate, like, would that? Some people could see that as uh, quicker lines of communication, you know, rather and getting things done more quickly, so more um, proactive. What What is the downside of that?
2: Downside is that things get put into production that shouldn't be put into production. Mm. Um, especially if you've got people, maybe not even junior level, just, you know, game artist, if they get told what to do by the creative director or by a writer or Mm -hmm. a senior, they take it as this is the word. Normally that would go through the art director and the art director decides, yes, you should do that or you shouldn't do that. Or, Mm -hmm. okay, let's have a time slot for that or give it to, not this artist, let's give it Mm -hmm. to this artist because they have an open slot on Friday or something. Uh, So yeah, you, you start getting things popping up just out of nowhere and you go, yeah, yeah. what is this? Like, I've never heard about this. Okay. Actually, I think
3: like, that's one of the things that I, I, I think, uh, everybody had to readjust to the new ways of communicating. So like, for example, when, when the pandemic started, I, I quite quickly realized that like in our studio, we have a lot of projects and people might be still in the know of what's happening in their projects they have no idea what's happening outside their projects. So what I started to do, like at the start of the pandemic, I started writing a blog post, something I've never done before. So I started doing like, first was like bi-weekly uh, blog post. I, I shared like some uh, new joiners, leavers, uh, anniversaries, this kind of information, um, and I could all, always also kind of push my uh, Things that I think are important for people to know, and also sometimes touching some of the the kind of more philosophical ways uh, that I, for example, with, during the pandemic, thought about the belonging and uh, why why is it important that we do
1: this and that, and
3: uh, mm-hmm.
1: so. Yeah, we so. had a policy, yeah. a long-standing practice at Next Games where we would have a, a weekly end of the week kind of like this is what we're all doing. Here's a couple of minutes about um, what any given team, whether it's um, something like PX or or marketing art or or even HR was doing, but also the game teams and their development and what they're proud of and what their next release is coming up. That became super important um, as a way for for everyone to stay connected with the company in general. Um, and in in many cases, it was the first opportunity for anybody to a uh, new joiner to present themselves to the company and say, hey, I, I'm actually here, this is what I do. Um, there was a lot of like, hopefully someday we'll meet at the office, but um, you know that's been open to us now for several months and it hasn't been the case. I think that we've had uh, everybody come in for a normal work day. We've had you know the getting back together and the summer party and those kind of things that people come to. And I think probably a big part of our strategy is just to increase the number of those kind of mingle events. And it doesn't have to be about come and sit at a desk and do work. But it does need to be like hey you guys are a team you need to know each other pretty well you need to uh, be able to trust that you can debate something without taking it personally or that it's that your method of conversation is, is amenable to getting things done um i like to think of this in pros and cons like all of the really bad habits that that happened before the pandemic that everybody just took as normal like open offices still suck will always suck right mm-hmm. this idea that you have to work in a cubicle but without walls and in full view of everybody (laughs) so that if you need five minutes to go answer a Facebook message, you suddenly feel like you're cheating on the company by not working and having something social on your screen. Like that doesn't matter, get your work done. We're all professionals, we're all adults, right? Um, I never wanna go back to a place where I have to wear headphones at my desk in a room full of people in order to signal like I'm trying to focus on something. That is way better to do from home when I know I have some long tasks that will take some focus. I mean, there's been psychological research about Um, you know, one meeting killing a half a day's productivity for a programmer, I'm sure it's the same Mm -hmm. for an artist. It can be very much the same for a designer who's working on complex formulas and spreadsheets or flowcharts and and these things are meticulous and anything where you have to hold a really big idea in your head all at once, um, someone says, I need you on this call for a minute and or or please come to this meeting, it's just as disruptive from home as it was before. Mm -hmm. Um, I mean, we've lost the commute, but now we've gained a good five minutes in every meeting for like, is my webcam working, can everybody hear me? <laughs> How many times have you heard that? Am I muted, you know, in, in the last year? Um, what I fear is that some of the old habits about like, if I don't see you, you must not be working, right? We'll come back. Um, I've moved from a position of uh, sort of vision holding within a team to, to managing and directing a discipline. So I'm learning from both sides what it was like to be managed in person And now having to try to keep up without being too nosy or sitting on someone's head when I need to find out how productive they're being or if they're making progress on something or if their professional development is going the way they want it to go. So these are these are quite subtle things. And uh, I don't know that we have like like you said, this has never happened before. So clearly there's no script for us to follow. Um, But hopefully the the tools that we have to reach out and make, you know, a little voice call less intrusive and less disruptive or. You know, maybe I need a tool that says I'd like to talk to you when you have a moment about something that isn't that important and then let the other person come back to me. Right. But the oh, hey, you got a second is always going to get like an immediate response and you've already thrown someone out of their train of thought. So uh, we need to keep working, I think, on policies
0: and practices to help that. Mm -hmm. I really like the, the second part of your question, which was what aspects are you going to fight to preserve and which you're happy to discard? in terms of creative processes. Obviously, you just spoke a lot there, like different ways um, that you've changed since that West Westall Tattoo, is there anything from out of the pandemic that you would be now realizing, okay, we don't need to work in that way, like anything that has changed for you? I've done loads of podcast episodes where we talked about how bad the pandemic's been, but also it's changed a lot of ways for good, like that we've worked before. Is there any examples for me
2: to review today? Yeah, I, I remember that, uh... The company I worked before, I had to fight really hard to get, like, fr- half Friday off or Friday. I said, like, well, the way that the, the job was structured on Friday, I wasn't really doing much. I was, like, reviewing things and it, I wasn't really needed in the office. So, hey, why don't I just do that at home? And it was really a struggle to convince them, like, I can do it and mm-hmm. I have to prove it that, you know, that I'm actually working. And um, now it's like the whole world knows, yeah. yes, <laughs> yeah. everyone can be at home and things yeah. still you might have to yeah come up with new ways of working, but it does work. So I wonder. By the way, there is there any any kind of difference between
3: Finnish working culture and uh, and the other places you've you've worked in? Because I I feel like Finnish society is so much built on trust, and uh, it's it's one of those things that I have to explain to many people that, that come to work at Rovio that our whole organization is built built on. Very independent team that are trusted to deliver and the same kind of independence and trust goes into individual level then that is like we there's
2: nobody tracking your work hours i did hear uh, a scary thing yeah. the other day that this is going to be some companies are starting to implement a tracker for people at home which i think is just bringing that stress back yeah, that, that will that will be horrible yeah yeah then you got to get like a mouse mover or something so yeah that, <laughs> It's to. a tough mix uh, when you're
1: bringing someone into an organization or or onto a project, you want to express to them, like, we all have this professionalism here that allows us to believe in each other and know that when we assign you a certain number of tasks uh, and you tell us that you think you can get them done by a certain day, everyone will believe you there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, some people will, of course, try to take advantage of that Right? they will do the minimum. It's the same as it was before the pandemic. Yeah. Those are the folks who would just come in and sit in their seat and never talk to anybody you kind of wonder after a while what so, Sometimes
3: all, all of the people who were the most social people, it, it's just like they're they are very visible on the, the corridors and coffee machines and everywhere around the office. They're probably very liked uh, individuals, but all of that time is kind of away from the work. Yeah. Like for, for me, especially like one thing that I'm noticing now when I'm working at home, I'm even scheduling meetings on my lunch hour. I don't really have yeah. like lunch, I don't do lunch anymore. I I start working at 7am, I work a few hours, then I get my kids to uh, school and daycare. Then I come back, start working again. I work through all over the, the lunchtime, uh, maybe get kind of another cup of coffee in the middle, uh, bathroom break and then I go and pick up kids again from the school and then I come back and work and might be working up uh, until late if I have a lot of things to do. So. It, Then I'm like, just like exhausted without zero breaks. If that would have been at the office, I would have had so many breaks in between the meetings. I would have Mm -hmm. laughed and talked to people about random topics.
0: So. Would you say you've been in that, would you say you're more productive as the work shows? Maybe you feel still like shattered (laughs) at the end of the day and stuff, but has the work become more productive? Because I'm just thinking, you said that as, uh, you know, you've got more hybrid, people at Next Games became more productivity increased is it a result of stuff like that maybe not having the regimented lunch hours and you're still able to do a little bit more work past five
2: o'clock because you're you're just focused at your screens it's really nice like you said that i can go have lunch anytime if i have a gap in a meeting or you know i'm hungry at four o'clock i don't feel bad Mm -hmm. going out of my house go have a coffee or some Mm -hmm. snack and then come back because i'm going to work seven to eight p.m or nine p.m so that's all good. I like to keep that as well. Like if you've got a doctor's appointment in the middle of the day, you yeah. don't want to like go all the way to the office, come all the way back then get back. Yeah. If you know, like the office is, the, the doctor's office is like a hundred meters from your house, just stay at home that day and you'll get, yeah. uh, you'll be more productive. One thing that I would like to kind of mention on this topic still
3: is that I feel like it's really not equal to everybody. Uh, even I, I have like different days, some days I'm, I'm distracted more easily. Some days I'm able to focus. Uh, I feel like the, the the kind of work from home has really been the great amplifier. It amplified whatever you
1: had and the way you are, it just like amplified it a lot. Yeah. If you're in a mood where you can't focus, you have every toy and gadget and game you've ever <laughs> you've ever purchased. Like yeah, or you, you focus on cleaning your yeah. kitchen and Polishing something, or and if you can focus, you
3: look up and it's like two hours after dinner, and you're like, where is this? And it's also like very different in that sense. Like like people with families, they have social contacts throughout the day. Sometimes, if they don't have uh, extra room to dedicate for office, they might have kids running around, (laughs) and so it's very very distracting work environment, Mm. very unoptimized. Yeah. And then like, if you have the luxury of having an extra room that you can lock yourself in and you can focus on work, that can be absolutely amazing. But oh, it is, was a big distraction. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Mm. yeah. Right, well, um, great first question, Steve. Thanks. Fantastic. <laughs> sure, thank we'll, uh, we'll move on to the second one, um, which is going to come from West. So uh, in the last few years, uh, gaming companies have become increasingly involved and vocal in the realm of politics. Um, they pick sides, post flags and symbols on their social pages, and even donate to a company or political organizations. So, you're asking, what changes have they noticed, positive or negative, and how do we remain creative in such an environment? So, do you want to give us
2: a little bit of an yeah. overview of that. I mean, like as artists, we're always working towards a goal. We have restrictions and restraints, and uh, we have clients who, who give us certain brackets to work within, uh, things they want to see, what they don't want to see. And when I started, um, like twenty years ago, mm-hmm. companies were just companies. You go to work, you make the product, you go home. You only really worry about making the best product, and who you're working with doesn't matter. What you're making as long as it doesn't, uh, you know, break the age restrictions and stuff. It's good. Uh, but within the last like 10 years, uh, I realized that companies it's no longer enough to make a good game. We have to make a good game and we have to let everyone know what our political beliefs are. And I think as an individual in, in the gaming company, sometimes you don't want to be associated with what the company does and they normally do it under the guise of, Hey, let's be inclusive. We, we want to, you know, be friendly and make sure everyone feels comfortable in that. But then who gets to decide that? Is it you know the CEO? Is it just what's popular at the moment? Um, when I walked in here, house, well, there's a rainbow flag on the company, on mm-hmm. on your roof. Uh, I don't know why. Because um, Rodeo wasn't anti-gay. When I walked it was mm-hmm. 10 years ago. It was, it was a very nice place. Mm-hmm. Um, everyone felt very comfortable. At least I think they did. And now they have to let everyone know what what their political standing is on this um, situation or this issue. Mm -hmm. And I think with something like a rainbow flag, 99.999% of people in Finland are going to agree with it. You're not going to have a problem. No one really cares, right? Mm -hmm. But what if it was something that maybe 5% of the company didn't agree with or 50%, but they had to go along with it because they don't want to cause an issue. And when they're making a game, We don't want to make the wrong game. We don't want to do the wrong things. We start getting the same as as a client gives you restrictions, except now your restrictions are are coming from an outside source. That's not even the company. It's coming from society and politics. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's sometimes a struggle. I mean, as an individual, I don't think it's a struggle. Like if I'm doing Mm -hmm. something at home, my own project, it's nothing. But if we're working on a project, say for another company, we know they have a political belief and we have to do something that fits in there. Yeah. Um, Yeah. How, how how do you make that work while still keeping your own voice? Um, and, and art by nature is risky. Um, you have to take risks as an artist and to be creative, you have to be willing to sometimes be a bit offensive or go over the boundary Mm -hmm. and test what's possible. I mean, when you're doing concept art, that's that's part of the conceptualization, conceptualization phases. Mm-hmm. Testing what works, what doesn't. And now we're starting already with the restrictions
0: in place. But it's something um, I've seen like Elon Musk tweeted around, uh, it was a joke around, I think whilst it was gay pride, like each individual company changing their logo from just mm-hmm. to the the rainbow badge like it seems to be the set thing to do now even though um you know like you said you you just do it but you know what's the reason behind it in terms of um creative processes for artists like you say art is very subjective as well has that ever sort of ended you you guys in in your sort of creative processes or anything like that i think it I would have to kind of take like one step backwards
3: and go into what's the purpose of companies in the first place. Like when I, when I started, started working, uh, uh like full time in the gaming industry, it was like still, even I was like defining that the, the, any company's purpose is to maximize the profit for the shareholders. Do I believe in that anymore? Not necessarily. I feel like the companies have much bigger role, uh, and then then that that's kind of one thing to like perspective to look at. What is the purpose of the company? What are what are we as a company uh, standing for? What are the things that we want to promote? What are the things that we want to stand for? Uh, I think uh, like. For us at Rovio, for example, we we often talk about things like we want to use the anger for good, because anger is part of our DNA through anger birds. We want to put that anger behind the things that we're passionate about. It might not uh, like always go like there's always going to be some people who are disagreeing with that. But then for me, the other perspective that I'm, I'm looking at it is that the, the, what's the purpose of art? And I'm I'm having this kind of. Uh, I would have to kind of uh, paraphrase, because I, I don't remember good uh, quotes from word to word, but uh, from critical theory, Mar- uh, Herbert Marcuse uh, had a great line on the purpose of art, uh, lies in that that it has the power of break the monopoly of the, the reality on defining what is true. So. Art has the power of defining what is true, so that's why uh, I don't. I don't think that the kind of sometimes it can go into the the territory of virtue signaling. Uh, sometimes it's very obviously that, but then when it's coming from a very honest place, like where I, I think it's coming from, when I when we're doing this uh, uh, at Rovio, it's about that. Uh, we want to make sure that the people that are, uh, feel bad about them, for example, being part of minorities, being part of uh, uh, the LGBTQ uh, community, like, we want to make sure that they feel that they are welcome. They are free to be who they are. And uh, I think that the people who are uh, like have the power, like the companies and gaming companies and corporations and everybody who does art, we have the the responsibility of using that power that we have in uh, giving uh, giving it to that those communities. Um, But yeah, kind of like there's uh, does that. Kind of hinder my creativity. I have never really been in a position where uh, what the company, sta- company stands for would be against my own beliefs.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Does it influence uh, your creativity in any way? No, not not really. No. Um, it does, uh, like when when we when we talk about it, mm-hmm. when we keep uh, it as a topic, like it's not about that. It used to be worse, so like we have to put rainbow flag up uh, on the roof to signal that now things are better for this one day or one week or one month of the the, the. It's not so much about that, but it's about kind of keeping the topic uh, in people's consciousness,
2: mm-hmm.
3: yeah. uh, and uh, through that it uh, normalizes that it, it is okay to be who you are.
2: Yeah,
3: um, and then then on the every other month of the, the year, when I'm being asked to uh, go and talk in a panel, I always do have that kind of like, is it gonna be all male panel? Like, well, sorry, but it is like probably <laughs> happened out of uh, uh, kind of without us, us thinking about it, but I always do think about it. When I'm doing a panel, do I invite, do I have like a diverse, enough uh panel do i have uh, or like i was once asked to participate in diversity panel and was like well that's kind of thing that i feel passionate about but i'm not necessarily the right person to be talking about that mm. i i much rather give that opportunity for somebody else that are uh, not only passionate about are there kind of right people to be talking about diversity?
0: I'm I'm kind of not the right person for that. Yeah, no, I, I've actually yeah. had, we, um, a member of our team, Sophie, runs a diversity and inclusion podcast. Yeah. And you'd be surprised how many people, like if you ask a, a white male to join a diversity and inclusion podcast, we get the very common answer is that I don't think I'm the right person to do it. And it is, uh, you know, I completely understand where you're yeah. coming from with that. Steve, do you have any, any thoughts on this? Uh, how much time you got?
2: Um, <laughs>
1: I, I
0: really like your, your
1: position, Tatu, of starting with the, the artistic uh, angle, because um, games are art, at least we all like to think so. Um, commercial art is still art, right? It doesn't matter if we're making it for a profit, it still like puts some of our soul, some of our identity into the things that we make. Um, and art has always been political, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, Egyptian uh, hieroglyphics were political. Uh, Shakespeare was political. Um, It doesn't have to have uh, overt uh, messages of the, I think the world should be run this way to still have a political message with it. And as we were just talking about with hybrid work, um, people spend the majority of their waking hours uh, making these products and putting something of themselves into them. Uh, It could be through the visuals, it could be through the dialogue, it could be just through the way the mechanics work. Um, All of those things have creative and artistic bend to them. And if we as people have politics and identities, and we belong to organizations that are lots of people. Well, it's uh, sort of inevitable, I think, that the company itself is going to uh, become the conglomeration of people's individual identities. And it could be that some people will find themselves uncomfortable with the the other folks, or the majority of folks feel singled out for having some opinion that's a little bit different from everybody else's. Um, But in a broader sense, this is how social progress has always worked. The number of people who are okay with some new process of human interaction Um, that, that group grows larger as people get exposed to it, as they find it happening in their own communities, maybe in their own families. Uh, and then eventually it doesn't become something that we need to talk about anymore. Women can hold positions of power now. Mm -hmm. Finland has always given the vote to women. I have a, a weird, tangential, uh, uh, theory about the fact that Finnish language doesn't have gender-based pronouns means Mm -hmm. that when Finland decided to give the vote to the people, there was never a question about which people should get the vote. All of the people Mm -hmm. should get the vote because there was no dividing line there but I have no no idea to back that up. That's just my own brain. But anyway, like this has happened over and over and over again in time. What we're seeing now is that some of these fights, as you wanna call them, are uh, steps of progress about rights for people with different gender identity or sexuality or even race in different parts of the world aren't exactly one, right? We have probably a broad majority that acceptance is always best. The only thing we don't wanna to tolerate is intolerance. Um, but whenever there's a chance, some different places or some different organizations or some different people with power will try to push that progress backwards. Um, and so as an individual who works for a company that I mean, we have 31 nationalities at Next Games, that's, uh, that's at least if, if we were all one person, that would be a quarter of the company is from different parts of the world. Um, but we still find ourselves being very male, very white, uh, and we try to increase uh, the breadth and, and, and diversity uh, of the company as much as possible. Um, we actually have a policy where we don't hire for team fit because that means we're reinforcing things that we already know. We hire for team expansion. We wanna bring uh, perspectives and viewpoints and experiences that we don't already have into our teams. And that's that's preferred. Um, yeah, I think all of this kind of swims around these things. If 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 I'm allowed to have my own opinions, but I'm gonna put so much of myself into what I do through the time and energy that I spend, I really want the things that I'm making to to highlight those those beliefs as well. And you're totally right, it can be done wrong like the rainbow washing, just like pink washing happened, just like all of this stuff. It's, it's you, can, you can have figureheads that don't really have any power or you can have these really crass, you know, not only did we make a rainbow logo, but we put it on a t-shirt and we'll sell it to you. And now we're just profiting off the fact that you think we believe in the things mm-hmm. that you want us to believe in. Um, I, I think that's really insidious and it's, and it's using that, those kinds of sentiments uh, for wrong. Um, I was glad that we had a presence in, in the, the pride parade Uh, this year but i didn't i was also glad that there was no like everybody should be there we have to be a big in big numbers right it's about individuals uh doing the things that they want and the company celebrating the fact that we have such a diversity of of backgrounds
0: Mm -hmm. i think it's a a really good point and i want to say on this type of question which sometimes people automatically think it's like a negative um but you put here i'd like to ask my colleagues what changes they've noticed positive or negative yeah uh, into how you know, we remain creative in this sort of environment. So is there any? Yeah, and it's,
2: it's not so much, I think uh, you guys have, have answered a lot on on the sort of the topics of, of uh, say like uh, gender ideology mm. or like people feeling comfortable. Mm. I'm talking more about the ideology behind that. Like right now we can all, like I say, rainbow flag, we're all happy with it because 99999 percent of people agree with it, but that can very easily change and be used to to say something that you don't agree with and then well, I mean I don't have an example but mm. it could be anything that you don't agree with um it could be some you know abortion topic or some racial topic or mm. some even some political group that starts up we don't even know about yet and you don't agree with it but you can't do anything because you might get fired or canceled or mm. people will put a label on you and so suddenly you're in this box and and then you are the minority and you can be you can be a white guy, middle-aged, Finland, straight, and you can still be a minority because you don't agree with something that your, your company has done. Um, and it's just weird that a games company would. Do you think that's
0: would, uh, a change happened before you've joined the company, or like like
2: so you've already it's, been at the company? It's not, not just games companies running. actually. I'm not picking them just on mm-hmm. games companies. It's it's everything.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: It's all big companies like Adidas and Nike. You know that everyone's doing it. Like you say, mm-hmm. let's. Nike wants to make his shirt, you know, rainbow Project, They're not giving it away for free and then donating the money to, to help some, uh, some organization. They're selling it to you to, to make a profit and purchase signal. Um, it's just that, yeah, when, when I go in to make a game or, or any company, any job I do, I'm there to make the product. I'm not trying to offend anyone. Um, and yeah, we're trying to make it for a target audience. If we want it to be, like you said, accepted by everyone. We want to make sure that no one is excluded and in that way it's good like that's what i'd say as mm-hmm. a positive we we're more aware now that our audience is not so uh, you know structured that especially with mobile games you know you want a, a wider audience mm-hmm. and we want to cater them and let's and not do things that are offensive mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. we dismiss 10 percent of our, our audience so in that way i said it's a good thing to be aware of these these things but um, in another way, it could be bad because of the way that the audi- ideology can be used against you. Mm-hmm. And you can you can very quickly lose your job or get canceled or labeled. or.
1: Um, I wonder if this is actually just a comment on how on the rise of um, people bringing their uh, work lives into their own personal social media. Right. Because that that is the thing that I think might have changed in the last 10 years. Right. It's always been the case that I could be working for a company that had values that I didn't agree with. Right. If if it was 150 years ago and I worked for the Ford Motor Company and I was tightening screws on on Model T's, mm-hmm. I might be very against the fact that they had these you know near slave labor villages built in Brazil to harvest rubber. Right. That might be something that sat really poorly with me. Mm-hmm. I might not even know, but like if I found out, it would be abhorrent. And you're saying, what are my options? Right. I can stand up and say yeah, I don't like well, this, and then maybe I get
2: my head cut off. I mean, we know we know swallow. that stuff's bad. It's more like if let's say if Henry Ford took the money from the company. Yeah. And then donated it to to yeah, to something where you strongly disagree with it and you can't say anything. So it's not just that like Henry Ford thought something, but that he's using money that you worked to help make, mm-hmm. and then he's donating it in the name of Ford, like we at Ford believe this, you know. And he gives the money, and you're yeah. like, well, I don't believe that, and my neighbor doesn't believe that, so please don't donate money that i that could go to the to the. I think there's always always at risk,
3: like. Um um I, I i ha, i have to say I've, I've never been in that kind of situation where i, I would be uh very clearly against uh any of the, the the policies or um the the values of of the company um i i can like very proudly stand behind what what Rovio has done on on that front i uh um but I, I do also see where you're coming from. And I can see that there's people uh, also feeling isolated, uh, that, okay, the vast majority is moving that uh, way. Nobody's revolting against any of this. And then they might be very isolated with their own thoughts. Uh, and they might even feel uh, uh, scared about, Talking about and having discourse, and that's something that I, I, I do do see happening more and more in the, the um, in the society in general is that we're coming becoming worse and worse at having discussions. Yeah, uh, and I I have had a, like uh, colleagues that are uh, very very against every everything that I believe, in, but I've always made it kind of a uh thing that I, I think i need to be able to do as a, as a person that i need to be able to discuss and have have discourse with them uh and and try to see like where are we we coming from sometimes you will notice that okay we we don't share the same facts so we're unable to have uh fruitful uh uh discussions but uh and uh, I, I have had also those moments where uh, something very big thing politically happening. And I find, find that somebody I, I, I really like to work with and I appreciate them as a professional, but they're having beliefs that I, I couldn't agree on. Um, I think, uh, for example, the, uh, the Russians' aggression, in, in Ukraine, yeah, we'll war. with war, Russians
2: and Ukrainians. Yeah, yeah.
3: and uh, I have I have friends uh, uh, and and colleagues that are Ukrainian. I have uh, uh, friends and colleagues that are Russian. Most of them agree that war was started by Russia. Uh, they uh, Russia invaded uh, Ukraine. Most people agree on those topics, but still. You might find that one person who are like, well, <laughs> that's debatable. And, and then you might kind of decide either to engage in that discussion, try to educate them, uh, try to uh see where they're coming from. And and then you can kind of decide whether
1: that's something that you want to put your energy towards. Right? Yeah. Like is it coming from a place where they're they simply haven't followed the issue and have read the the facts or seen the yeah. evidence that everybody else has, yeah. or is it they're willfully denying it, yeah. right? And you on some it. level, it's like people have their own priorities and their own lives. If, yeah. if that person is like, I haven't read the news or seen the documentary, I've got six kids at home and all of this stuff to do and a really heavy workload, that's one thing. Um, if it's too far down the other road, I might start to wonder about the person's critical thinking capabilities yeah. and whether or not they're mm-hmm. gonna bring some of yeah. the same questionable judgment to their yeah. work decisions. Yeah. But it, like one point on that is that like all
3: our opinions, like everything we know about world that is outside our immediate uh, range of our senses is mediated through some kind of a media. Either it's news outlets, it's uh, Internet pages, it's uh, hearsay from our colleagues and friends and families, or it can be... The representation in games, or it can be from all these different kinds of sources. Uh, I, I think like majority of people have their uh, idea of what like romantic love is uh, mediated to them from the comedy. entertainment industry. Yeah. They've seen a lot of romantic comedies, and they're they're seeing like a lot of romantic comedies that like, just repeating and perpetuating this this uh, kind of a, a model about what is love and then then you're kind of always comparing your own experiences to that kind of mental model uh, mm. it's all mediated and that's that's also the kind of reason why i think uh, companies and especially gaming companies have to be paying a lot of attention to these like represent- representation matters yeah. because like if we don't break the the, the kind of perpe- uh, the cycle of perpetuating stereotypes. Uh, if we don't break it and bring the more diverse uh, images into our games, more diverse characters, more uh, representation on all levels, the mediation
1: and the perpetu- perpetuation will just continue. Yeah. Mm-hmm and yeah, the things we do we're going to send a message whether we are aware of that message or specifically yeah. intentionally
0: select that message or not and so why wouldn't we care what that message is yeah so no, uh, i i'm just going to move it on. it's a really good question but i'm sure we yeah. can uh talk and pause, pause and, yeah pause and yeah and no, just um just conscious of time i want to give yeah. everyone a fair uh, fair amount of please please. time with the question so thank you very much for that anyway uh, we'll move on. Uh, we'll take it slightly back um, to creative side. So, Tatsu, we're going to come to your question, which was: uh, How do you see the rapid advancement in the ML, AI font changes in the creative industries? Will robots replace us? Very interesting. Yeah. So, go on, kick us I, up. Uh, I, I absolutely love these kind of
3: doomsday scenarios. Mm-hmm. Like the robots are taking our jobs. The users are taking our jobs. The uh, will there be jobs? Like, like. I like it kind of as a starting uh, position, the doomsday scenarios. Um, I've been I've been looking into machine learning uh, for uh, for quite some time. I was expecting some of those things to happen a lot earlier. I've been preaching about it like 15 years <laughs> or so. I was I was genuinely expecting it to first that we would have like, for example, proper retopo tools on 3 d side. I wasn't expecting me journey or Dolly to happen. That was like okay. Like the 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 whole treaty might just kind of become uh, automized, but at least the concept artists will have their jobs. <laughs> <laughs> and now it's kind of like happening maybe the other way around that the concept art uh, might be the kind of first frontiers that are changing. And on the design side, I've I've used. Uh, uh, open AI playground for generating text blocks like stories. Yeah. Like you just input a short description of what you want your story to be, like one sentence or it's just keywords, and it makes you like proper paragraph of a short description or premise for a story. Yeah. Um, or as a as a manager who's doing a lot of hiring, uh, I, I realized that AI writes better job ads than I do. <laughs> so. How do you guys see
1: this uh, affecting all of our lives and creative work in the future? From the visual art side, um, I personally haven't seen anything come from Midjourney or Dolly that wasn't creepy AF. Uh, like it has this uncanny valley hollowness to it that makes me think that Lovecraft must be the number one, uh, you know, source of inspiration for anything that comes out of those <laughs> engines. But I'm sure that that will change over time. If, if we fed it a lot of Disney and Teletubbies, it would look very different, but maybe those would also be creepy. Um, so in that way, I think uh, it's, it's another tool for pushing people to find the spark in them that they want to put down on the page or onto the screen. Um, I, I, I'm i sure someone will at some point try to make uh, some, some mid-journey based game where all of the assets come from. Right. That's that's kind that's of what, already happened. That's yeah. what indie gamers and indie game, you know, solo or small team devs uh, would love to do that kind of thing. Whether or not those things will become financially or culturally successful enough that there will be follow ons, I don't know. I, I don't think I'm ready to jump onto that bandwagon, though, and say that that I would feel like it's a, an important new must use tool in concept in concept and games.
2: Yeah, uh Yeah, I'm going to kind of second that. that um... I did a test a few weeks ago with, with Dali too, mm. and like you say, um, it gives amazing images really, uh, but it doesn't give me the image that I want. So the example I used was I had the, a concept art image that I'd done at a cottage, and then I was gonna see, can I use Dali to make that same image if I keep giving it more instructions? And it would kind of move towards it, and then it would just go some other direction. Mm. And I wanted some specific things like I wanted the cottage in the middle and I wanted this light beam shining down and the atmospherics, and the butterflies. And it just wouldn't give me what I wanted. And also the getting the framing right. And, and yeah, just the feeling was wrong and I got some amazing images. So I would say if you were not caring about any narrative, anything behind the image, you just want a nice image. Like, Hey, I, I've written a book. And I want a picture of a cottage in the forest. And you just you do a hundred versions, and you'll find one. Mm. And then you don't have to pay the artist. So those kind of artists will get replaced. Mm.
1: Is but, it maybe the case? Sorry to interrupt, but uh, that the, in the same way the microwave has made everybody into at least a mediocre cook, that these tools might make everybody into at least a mediocre concept artist.
2: Yeah, but still I mean, like
1: really good working. Even a really good, even
2: out. a really good uh, concept artist, as long as the art is not attached to anything mm. so yeah in that example like if if you were given the the task as a concept artist, design this cottage for uh, you know some character from a fantasy novel. novel you would go read the novel you would go okay he's wearing this sort of clothing because he, his job is a lumberjack so you know if he's a lumberjack that means there's going to be mm-hmm. logs outside yeah. there's going to be carvings on the wall he he whittles wood and you would put this all into the design and then the game maybe the level designer would come along and say, you know what, we're going to see this from third person. So all our details have to be lower. So let's put all this stuff here. And then the modeler comes in and he does his magic. And at at every level, the artist is thinking what's behind this. Who's the character? What world is this? Mm -hmm. You know, is this cottage being desolate for 100 years or is the guy you, you would hope the artist would be <laughs> like that. A good concept artist, a good, yeah. a good artist would do it. That's what we're pushing the yeah. artist to do. I uh, try to explain yeah. why they should be doing that. And yeah. to get that all from Dali, you know, you need such a long description. Yeah. It just doesn't work. So it makes very pretty images, but if you want something specific, it's. Well, yeah. I suppose the question um, with the advancement. So that's where
0: it is now, if that gets. Of like bands, amazing, bands. amazing images. Do you, think, of uh, do you think it will eventually
2: start to push? Keep I think blind. it's going to get very close because you could then give the AI Lord of the Rings to read,
0: mm-hmm.
2: and as long as it knows what a human is, and it long, as long as it understands all the you know the yeah. miles and miles of description that talking gives, and it puts it all in order, yeah. and then you can say, you know, "Design me a, an Aragorn concept." It'll source everything and give you a really nice option. I think it, yeah. it will do that, but eventually sure it will. Like yeah. uh the, the the kind of thing is that when, when it's kind of built
3: on natural uh language engines and the understanding of the language, it, it it has kind of uh that's where it's built from. But then like what we're talking about now, like Mid Journey, Dali, uh these kind of models, they are still mostly um they we're we're talking about this like commercially available. Uh, first generations of this, that are fed with the same Pinterest, Google search, uh, get the image uh, material. So that is still defining a lot what you can get out of them. But if you think about, for example, stable diffusion that is open source and you can uh, run it locally, so you can also uh, decide on the material that is being fed to. You might start getting like le- less generic
1: yeah. uh, results from it. Yeah, you know, one of the things that's always been a, a bugbear with with the uh, live operated games um, or games that require regular updates is just the the minimal manpower, person power needed to make the content, right? This asset pipeline that never seems to end. And um, I think where you were going yeah. with that, if You can build a game and then feed it the assets and then say, well, now we need this, but for Valentine's day, and now we need this, but it has to be set in the cave. Now we need this, but they're going to space and those things become a lot easier to build. Then there's probably a lot of hope for it in the future. I guess the other side is also the break point of profitability. If the work that they're replacing, even in a poor way is so expensive, that it would push the product into a viability stage from a, from a financial standpoint then maybe these tools could help a lot of other stuff get off the ground that wouldn't be made otherwise. Mm-hmm. But that's kind of up to the audience to decide if they're willing to stomach art that comes from these generation machines, as opposed to something that has real uh, personal artistic intent behind it. So I,
3: I well, like, maybe on, on that front still, uh, I think like we're, we're uh, uh, the whole like beautiful images, maybe beautiful but soulless images that we're getting from Me, Journey and Dolly, are a little bit kind of masking what is possible with the technology uh, so like my personal exp- explorations with that was like well what is my normal creative process i go to like i need to find like a i have this image in my mind i might scribble something maybe i get something out of it but more often than that i i go and do image search in pinterest i do image search in google images i I do hours and hours of collecting references of, like, uh, what is a lumberjack hot? And I, I do a lot of that research and I, I collect ideas, like, that is a great idea. That is a great idea. That is a great idea. But nowadays, I, I might just go to Meet Journey and generate uh, some of those images that will end up into uh, the mood board. Not necessarily as final concepts, but into the mood board. Um, and sometimes like image, even how beautiful it is, can be like an imperfect um, way of communicating. You have an image and all the diff- people that are looking at it are looking at it in different ways and interpreting it in different ways. I feel that sometimes the some of the machine learning stuff uh, can be, maybe even more successful than I would be because like my uh, artistic library is still very limited to all the art that I've ever consumed. But then I have a machine learning that has like all the stuff in the internet. And when I, uh, I I'm still kind of product of the, the, my internal biases. Like when I start drawing a character, I'm more likely to draw something that I'm more familiar with. Like if I need to draw a cute uh, girl character for a mobile game, I might start from like European, uh, American looking character. And I might put like a lot of the clothing and things that are, I think are cool and stuff like that. But then if I type into um, mid-journey, cute, female character that does this and this as a profession, uh, done in Pixar style. I get something that is kind of very wide appeal because it's the kind of summary of what the whole spectrum of internet thinks as cute. So you might get like, huh, I didn't never actually thought about it. That's actually a good idea. Maybe I should go more into that direction. So I also see that it's a it's a very kind of good way of us breaking that cage that is our own boundaries, our own limited library of uh, visual
0: images. It's, uh, it's interesting you said that around if you were going up to create something versus uh, an AI-generated art, because I, I searched something off the back of what you said, Steve, around, I suppose it's up to the, uh, like the viewers of the art as to whether it's nice or not. You might have mentioned it, but I didn't. Have, you have you seen that image? Is that the one that won the yeah. competition. Yeah. yeah. So that image, Steve, you can obviously, for that, listeners won't be able to see it, but basically it was a uh, New York a, Times article about AI generated art winning prizes. Yeah. So it won an award, that so image that was generated by yeah. AI. So that's why you were saying there is interesting. If you were yeah. up against a machine that has, has access to all these different things, how would you feel about it? Because that, yeah. me looking at that, is a very cool image. Yeah. I mean, it's not just like a product of one
3: AI. Like uh, it's uh, I think uh, the, the original image was uh, uh generated in mid-journey mm. and then it was upscaled in gigapixel AI. And that's the kind of the creepy thing. Like uh kind of when when I was uh, last week I was doing some exploration on that, I, I went into open AI. I uh asked it to copyright the story premise for me. Uh, I took some key things from that story premise, inputted those to me journey, got a character. Then I put uh, that character image. I, I selected the best character from that. I upscaled it and got like, okay, that's pretty good. I, I took that image and put it to uh, another AI that is uh, only for upscaling images even further. Then I took that image and put it into another AI that was about uh, face reconstruction and facial. Like it replaces the eyes and mouth and nose with like perfect looking ones, so you get rid of the AI artifacts. And then I put that image into another uh, AI that uh, auto detected the the facial features and animated it uh, with a kind of uh, morphing and giving lip syncs and eye. Uh, movement. And at that point, I was like, the first time ever, I went to my wife and I was like, that they might actually come.
1: <laughs> the robots might. That process be. that you you just described sounds a lot like the human centipede of AIR generation. Right? <laughs> but like, but that's how it, yeah. it often is. Like,
3: it can, like, now we're just talking about the concept mm. art, but there's already like great ap- applications of generating uh, rock textures, generating mm. Plugging it into Substance Designer, and then you have like you just type in what kind of material you want, and the the AI does the rest. Yeah. Or you have like a uh, you input your own concept image to an AI, and it automatically uh, makes a makes a character 3D model out of it, and then you feed that into another one that rigs it and animates it. You're kind of seeing this kind of automation creeping into these small pockets
1: of that uh, tedious neighbor that like used to be there. Uh, automating or, or like batch processing the stuff that takes a person no conscious thought, but lots of time and energy to build, I'm 100% for. Um, I am well not convinced that that from an artistic or creative direction standpoint, of course, it will probably come where I will interact with a TV show or a movie or a video game that was generated in that way largely. And I didn't realize it until afterwards or mm. someone would have to tell me. And that's sort mm. of like the, the moment there is like someone looks up and says, is this real chicken? You know, like that's 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 the, the, the point that I think you're, you're looking at into the future. Um, mm. But yeah, I, we're already kind of in a and, and people have been saying this about the games industry in general for a long time every shooter is either a copy of Overwatch or a copy of Battlefield, mm. right? And if, if what we're doing is we're taking like the conglomeration of everything available in a certain media or on, in the larger, broader sp- spectrum of the internet and saying, make me a first person shooter, that's not gonna change. They're gonna become even more yeah. reductive yeah. in that way, right? Yeah, everything is a copy of a copy of a copy.
3: <laughs> and this cycle has been going on for quite some time. Everything is a remix
1: anyhow. Benjamin Franklin said that everything worth inventing already exists, yeah. so clearly he was right.
0: On yeah. your question of uh, will the robots replace us? This is completely unrelated to gaming. Me and Paul were walking around Espo earlier and I swear to God there was three robots on wheels that just wheeled past us. They're, they're delivery robots. They're delivery... We people. were
3: like, what the hell is this? Yeah. <laughs> got Very cute, yeah. but, but they're also kind of competing uh, for the jobs that Walt uh, or delivery companies yeah. Are yeah. Having- It's not as fast.
0: No, no, they were just crawling along. Yeah, and then the other day when we were in a restaurant, there was a robot that came and collected the plates, just put it on it, and it was (laughs) like... But but I think it's just kind of, like, interesting from that perspective. I think, like,
3: all of us are roughly that age that, like... uh, When I was born, graphic design was still being carved to metal plates and printed to paper. It wasn't until... uh, Like some point in my childhood that computers started to enter the graphic design industry Uh, and then all of us started probably working before mobile games were kind of a big thing, or you could play games with them. Uh, But there there is a lot of uh, professions that have been made obsolete Mm. uh, through the progression of uh, technology, like knocker uppers, that were knocking uh, on the windows of people before uh, invention
1: of alarm arm clocks, or uh, we don't have someone running around to hand light all of the street lamps. Yes, getting, exactly. You know, yeah, exactly. So, and what we've seen in the past, I mean, this is big, big sort of sweeping change, industrial revolution stuff. The in general, this this forefends an increase in uh, the quality of life for the general population, right? Because a lot of these menial or tedious or dangerous kinds of labor um, weren't paid very well and they freed people up to pursue other things. And eventually that caused the ability for technology to step forward. I'm not saying that mid journey is going to hearken some sort of new technological revolution that makes internet based jobs obsolete, Mm. but clearly like we don't need to hire someone and, and, and pay them a living wage to copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste, copy, paste Mm. when a computer can do that for us better. So Mm. hopefully it does in the broad sense of things allow for maybe more creativity maybe these things can be the kickstarter for group uh discussions on art design and say well this is what the AI can do we need to come up with something better right uh and and set some set
2: some goals that way that, that push us forward can I ask one thing about this like how how long do you think it'll be until you make a decision about employing like an artist and like maybe you wrote says hey we starting a new project we need other another artist and you're actually we don't we can just use the AI like how long until it might not be that obvious that you have to make the decision between a and the artist it would be more like you just don't the question never comes up because you can do the work but... uh, i think i already
3: did uh, <laughs> uh, but it needs a bit of asterisk and yeah. attitude so like uh like a game in a very very early state and they were asking for character design uh help and and I think they're not that far yet. They can do more explorations with uh, characters that are generated by mid-journey, for example, or user research, where you have to often uh, present the audience, like, variations. I think like, I, I wouldn't like my my artist to waste at very early stage, a lot of time, if we're able to, with uh, machine learning algorithms, generate uh, very, uh, steady quality variants. All of the variants are the same quality, uh, but with different substance. So we're more likely to actually get better results from the user research. We often, what, uh, throws the user research off is that one of the variants is better production quality because somebody just like uh, worked a little bit harder on yeah. that one. And favorite one. They work a bit more even. on their
0: favorite. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so um, I, on that sense, like, maybe it's already happened.
2: Yeah.
0: Fantastic. Great. Great question. All three brilliant questions. Uh, I hope you enjoyed it. It's been uh, really nice to listen to. Is it over already? Apparently so, yeah. That's uh, that's all too. Well, thank you very much uh, Tatsu, West and Steve uh, for joining and thank you again for hosting uh, and to Rovio <laughs> as well. Well, that concludes uh, another episode of the Evolution Exchange podcast. Thank you very much. Thank Thank you. Thank you.